It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Welcome to the show, guys. This is your host, Brian Preston. I got to tell you, I think, Bo, you and I do this for our own entertainment. <laughs> Don't want to do the podcast for our own entertainment? Because <laughs> we certainly stay entertained. <laughs> I'm talking about the music intro stuff. You know, oh. I, I, I like to play every now and then. We did it, I think, two episodes ago, right at the beginning of the real estate when I played a little Aerosmith right. for you to welcome you back to the show. Well, this one, when I was preparing for the show today, I don't know, halfway through it, I realized I'm at war with this thing. <laughs> I mean, I, it's going to be that good of a show. So I felt like I needed something to kind of some get, war the, mood, music, go, get right? the mood going. And, and I'm one of those guys, when I found out Apple bought Beats, like a fanboy, I went out there, I was like, there's got to be something to that. So I have subscribed to Beats. And now, so I have the whole universe of music. I couldn't help but play and I tried to do one song, but then you and I couldn't decide which one was the better of the two to, to play with to get us ready for today's show. So this was the first one, and maybe the audience can let us know which one they like. We're only going to play this for a few seconds. I mean, if you're getting ready to go to battle, how do you not get energized when you hear that music right there? Now, it gets a little disco-y later. But that part's pretty cool. You even hear the disco groove in the background. I'm three seconds away from doing jumping jacks and push-ups right now, <laughs> just so you know. And then this one, of course, is timeless. I mean, you want to run through a wall, don't you? <laughs> right now, I do. Absolutely. So what in the world could we be talking about financially that make you want to listen to Rocky music? I mean, what in the world is what we're going to be... Guys, you can't laugh. This is a professional operation here. So here's what we're going to be covering today. It's one of our favorite topics, wouldn't you say? I do. We, we do talk about this because it comes up, I kid you not, at least two, maybe even three times a week. And I'm not talking about with just prospects. I'm talking about with existing clients as well as when I meet people out and about. And so what I did was when I went out there and I typed in, why dollar cost averaging? I love how Google populates what everybody else is asking. Because right. there was 115,000 results when I typed in why dollar cost averaging and then dot, 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 you fill in the blank. And here's the top four things that popped up. Number one was doesn't work. Okay. So a lot of haters wow. out there. There's a lot of haters that don't like dollar cost averaging. Number two, why does dollar cost averaging work? Oh, that kind of so that that covers better. the whole gamut. And then three was basically... A blank because that was the question. Why dollar cost averaging? So I guess you could just put a question mark after why dollar cost averaging. And then fourth was why dollar cost averaging, number four, makes sense. Oh. So, but it was interesting. Number one was doesn't work. So there are a lot of people that are trying to shoot holes in it. And, and you're asking why in the world are we going to be talking about dollar cost averaging? This is why. People calling me and they're saying, Brian, the Dow is at an all-time high. The S&P 500, all-time high. What should we do? I've got, I'm sitting on all this cash. Should, should we be doing something with it? I mean, should we be waiting for a downturn to come our way? Mm-hmm. What are we going to do? Or have a new prospect call me up. We just sold some real estate because, you know, real estate marketplace is starting to heat up as we talked about in the last two shows. Or I've sold a business. I'm sitting on this big lump sum of cash. I'm earning practically nothing. What do I do? Right. I mean, these are the typical conversations we have. And people are looking for direction. And I don't want to ruin it for everybody, but here's the truth of the matter. 
we don't know what's going to happen in the short term. And I know a lot of you are like, wait a minute, don't you get paid to do this professionally? You're supposed to be able to give us guidance. And I can give you guidance and we can read the tea leaves just like everybody else. But in the short term, I'm talking about the next 12 months, we don't know whether the market's going up or down because it's the markets are irrational in the short term. Right. And big surprise, those financial entertainment shows that you watch, they don't know either. No, sir. They just they just get paid a little bit more to act like they know. But they, they don't understand it as well. So we're going to try to cover today why you might want to consider dollar cost averaging. Um, and just to put myself back in the game so you don't think we don't know what in the heck we're doing here, long term, I can tell you I think that the financial markets are going to do very well. And, and the reason I say that, Bo, you give me a Nurk, Nick, Nurk, a, a Nick Murray quote all the time. What's that quote? Hey, Nick Murray says, if you think the markets are overpriced now or if you think the markets are high now, wait till you see them 10, 20 years from now. And, and that's a great quote because it really does put it in perspective because there's not a time in a 20 year period where you don't come out on a good side of things with, with diversified investing. Um, and I'll tell you another thing is when I talk about why I'm positive in the long term on investing in general, I mean, let's talk about the good. We got globalization. I mean, the world is getting to be a much, much smaller place. Number two, innovation and technology. I mean, it is so surprising to me how much we're able to do remotely through, I mean, distance. We had phone calls with prospect clients all over the country as well as podcast clients that have now been clients for years. And we always ask them at that one-year assessment meeting, was distance a big deal? Nope, not at all. You guys are on top of it. That's what technology and innovation allows you to do. And then lastly, debt levels for individuals and corporations are actually at good levels right. now. I, I think the deleveraging of the, what happened in the, the financial collapse of 2008 has now played itself to where we're all sitting on a lot more cash. We've all paid down our credit card bills. We're in a much better situation financially. So those are things that, that bode very well for the long term. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to attempt to kind of talk about things on what the opportunities are for dollar cost averaging, as well as what's the counter argument? Because it's not fair for somebody to do a show and not tell you what the other side is saying. Because a a good investor is an educated investor, and we're going to cover that. Before I do it, though, giving you a lot of meat there, I need to tell you this is the Money Guy Show. It's ridiculous how we get into these things. I get so excited. I play bumper music, get you all pumped up with the Rocky music, and I didn't give you the website. It's money-guy.com. Also, please, when you go out to the Money Guy website, check out the T-shirts. Remember, they benefit autism research and support. And we're planning, just so you know, as we continue to raise this money, our plan is hopefully over the next six months, we're going to have some um, some some pictures we're going to be circulating when we actually make grants to these charities, letting you guys kind of see what your good work of purchasing these Money Guy and the Tightwad Nation shirts, what the the good that they're actually doing out there in the communities. So that's the plug we'll give on that, money-guy.com. Go check it out. But let's get back to dollar cost averaging. Might it be beneficial to even just talk about what the textbook definition of dollar cost averaging is? Yeah, I mean, I can then... Do you have that pulled up, Bo? Yeah, so this, according to Investopedia, dollar cost averaging is the technique of buying a fixed dollar amount of a particular investment on a regular schedule, and this is my favorite part, regardless of the share price. More shares are purchased when prices are low, and fewer shares are bought when prices are high. And that's what Investopedia says dollar cost averaging yeah, it gives is. You, it gives you the best of all worlds to a large degree. But a lot of people, and this is what I'll get to in a minute when I talk about the haters of dollar cost averaging, um, They'll say, well, wait a minute, guys, you're, you're totally 
underplaying how good the financial markets are, meaning the probability of success from doing a lump sum investment is better than you're probably realizing. And so I, I had to ask, let me give you some stats. And I thought, who better to go pull a stat from, especially in 2006, because this is when he made all of his money off of things, was Dr. Doom, Mr. Rubini himself. Oh, Noriel. Yep. He he had a quote. Well, I pulled an article on him that actually came out on September 5th of 2006. And he was talking about how much money you typically lose from peak to bottom of the typical stock market recession. And the number he came up with was a 28% loss. Now, remember, this article he wrote with the quote came out in 2006. So if you fast forward what actually happened in 2008, the S&P 500, by the way, that number when I said 28% was based on the S&P 500. When I fast forward to 2008 or rewind, if you're looking back from now, because we have the, the benefit of hindsight, the S&P actually lost with dividends 37%. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people, when I say, wait a minute, the market's good. Shouldn't we just let it roll? A lot of us, just because there is a fear concern, will say, what about that? What If we're at an all-time high, what about the 28% normal recession and the 37% downturn that occurred during 2008? The Great Recession, yeah. What's going to happen there? So that's what, and we've kind of already let the cat out of the bag because I'd written down the magical, I say magical with quotes, Non-emotional decision-making tool is obviously dollar-cost averaging. And Bo just did a great job of giving us the, I think that was probably like Investopedia mm-hmm. or something like that. That's probably where That's you right. pulled that from. But we, before we go any further, we got to address the haters. we got to look at it. And I can't even talk about dollar-cost averaging. There's probably a, a collective exhale that occurred out there in the audience of people who are listening like, Oh God, here's another one of these dollar cost averaging guys. What, doesn't he know Vanguard came out with a great report in 2012 that totally said that dollar cost averaging doesn't work because financially you're going to end up better if you just go ahead and do the lump sum investing. So I wanted to go ahead and pull that article or that research report from Vanguard. It came out in July of 2012. So it's a little over two years now. And here's what the executive summary says, it says, on average, we find that an LSI approach, that's lump sum investing approach, has outperformed a DCA approach, that's dollar cost averaging approach, approximately two thirds of the time. Now, I saw another research report that said 70% of the time. Oh, wow. So, so keep somewhere between 65 and 70% yeah, lump so sum beats dollar cost two averaging. Two thirds to, to, to 70% of the time, lump sum investing beats dollar cost averaging. Even when results are adjusted for the higher volatility of a stock bond portfolio versus cash investments. It goes on, it says, We conclude that if any investor expects such trends to continue, is satisfied with his or her target allocation, and is comfortable with the risk-return characteristics of their strategy, the prudent action is investing the lump sum immediately to gain exposure to the markets as soon as possible. But if the investor is primarily concerned with minimizing downside risk and potentially feeling of re- feelings of regret, and they put in parentheses, resulting from lump sum investing immediately before a market downturn, then DCA may be of use. Now, caution, I want to give you a passive-aggressive warning that, that you got. Somebody is about to be condescending with their, their research report statement. So here's the passive-aggressive condescending statement that's coming up. It says, because remember, it just gave a kudo to dollar cost averaging. It's basically saying, 
If the investor is primarily concerned with minimizing downside risk and potential feelings of great regret, then DCA may be of use. So they're calling these scaredy cats. Because here it goes. It goes, of course, any emotionally based concerns should be weighed carefully against both, one, the lower expected long-run returns of cash compared with stocks and bonds, and number two, the fact that delaying investment is itself a form of market timing, something few investors succeed at. So did you, did you just, that was dripping with condescension, you know, with being condescending. Yep. So how do we deal with this? I thought it was interesting when I read that report, uh, you know, you can't help but start thinking about this from what does that mean? I mean, when I hear two thirds of the time, the markets go, I mean, my investments go come out better by doing a lump sum investment versus a dollar cost averaging. To me, that leaves a third of the time that I could get stuck. I mean, we're talking about 30% of the time we very well could get left holding the bag, meaning the market's gone down either the 28% average or the 37% of the time. So there must be a huge difference in the performance between lump sum investing versus dollar cost average. Right. So I dug a little, a little deeper. Here's what I found. Well, before hit the pause button on that. Before I give you the perspective, let me go pull because we have all kind of things that we buy insurance for to protect us from risk. And I started thinking about it. I was like, okay, well, wait a minute. I've got a third. You know, there's a third that if I did the dollar cost averaging, would come out better. There's also risks, and what it, my whole concern is the markets go go down. There's other risks that I'm always trying to insure against. One of them is auto insurance. Right. We all have cars. Well, most of us have cars. And I went and pulled. I said, what are the odds of being in a car accident? Listen to this. Here's the stat on being in a car accident. It says one out of every four people will be in a a car accident in their lifetime. One out of four in their lifetime. And your chance of of dying in a car accident are only one out of every 140 people. Holy cow. So wait a minute. I'm not talking about death. Let's just take that out because that's less than 1% chance from driving in a car. Let's just talk about being in an accident. It's only a 25% chance that I'm going to be in a car accident, but yet I spend thousands of dollars on car insurance. Why? It's because it's a risk that I want to insure against because nobody wants to have to go spend, come out of pocket for $25,000, $30,000, $40,000, whatever the cost of a car, plus all the other things that might go with it if somebody's injured in the accident. We mitigate that risk by insuring against the concern. So, like I said, getting back on point with dollar cost averaging versus lump sum investing. Obviously, if we're going to forego the dollar cost averaging for the lump sum because of the two-thirds of the time lump sum does better, it better be a significant difference in outcomes. So let's look back at the Vanguard report and go deeper into the numbers. If you go deeper into the research report, they do have a question. It says, on average, by how much does lump sum investing outperform dollar cost averaging? Okay. It says, and I'm just going to read it. It says, to calculate the average magnitude of lump sum investment outperformance, we calculated the average ending values for a 60-40 portfolio. So that means 60% equities, 40% bonds, portfolio following rolling 10-year investment periods in the United States, 12-month DCA. By the way, when they say 10 years, they, they went all the way back to the 1920s for this research report all the way up to the end of 2011, because remember this research report came out in 2012. So the 10-year investment periods in the United States 
12-month dollar cost averaging led to an average ending portfolio value of $2,395,000. Now, remember, the whole strategy of this thing is they put a million dollars into the market every 10-year cycle between 1920 26 or 20, I could go pull it real quick, but they all the way from the 20s, all the way through the end of 2011. And they said, what it was it worth after every 10 year period? So that $1 million investment with dollar cost averaging was $2,395,000. Okay. Lump sum investing led to an average ending value of $2,450,000. Oh, that, that number is not markedly different than the first number you're at. Well, We're talking about a total of $55,000 or 2.3%. Over 10 years, by the way. So you mean to tell me for 2% more, I'm going to just assume and whitewash that third of a risk that the market's going to go down. That seems like a bigger risk because we're not talking about a car here. We're talking about your chance at financial independence here. I mean, the notes I wrote to myself was it was kind of a, you know I was like, oh my god, this is this is ridiculous. You know, we have all these people talking in absolutes. You should lump sum invest versus dollar cost averaging, and then when you dig into the data points, you figure out they're talking about two percent over three over ten years. Really? I mean, that seems like. You're minimizing that one third of the time that things really could be like 2008. And, and I don't know if maybe it's because I deal in the reality of working with individuals and I know how scary it is when you walk into that retirement and you no longer, when you, when you leave a job, people need to understand it's a risk. It's, well, it's a different type of fear that hits you because, you know, we go through a downturn. Many of you have been through downturns. We've been on the planet long enough that you've been through 2008. You've probably been through the dot-com bubble. You've even been through some of the stuff that happened in, in the 90s. And you, and you look at yourself and you go, well, it's okay. I'll just keep working. I, I can, you know, I'll, I'll keep working. Work a little harder. I'll put in a few more hours. Yeah, I'll save, a, I'll save a little bit more. I don't have to retire yet. I'll be okay. But what happens? You retire. You've taken away the safety net because it's, once you give up your job, it's hard to go back and grab that job again. They right. usually replace you, and now you're living completely off of your portfolio. And that's a fear that most people don't recognize until they actually cut the strings and they're fully retired. And that leads to, you know, why I think you not only need to focus on the probability of dollar cost averaging versus lump sum investing and, and which one's going to be more successful, you need to also bring into the equation what is your behavior going to be like as an investor? Because there's a lot more going on than just the data points from a research report. So let me flip through. Because I even thought it was interesting. One of these bash articles I found on dollar cost averaging. I'm not going to give you the... I don't want to give attention to some of these people. I think that they say things just to get in, you know a focus from the financial media. I think sometimes you have to be careful of advisors that say things just so they get noticed. And there's a lot of them. That's why when I talk about financial entertainment, there are people all over the TV that will say very loudly certain thoughts just because it gets them attention and that helps sell things. So be careful and always keep that in the back of your mind. But here's the quote from somebody who is in a, a bash piece on dollar cost averaging, it says normally most investors don't have large sums of money to invest at once, but right now many are sitting on large cash positions. And then Mr. Blank, 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 I'm not going to give you his name, 
did note that the person who put money in slowly was still better off than the person who tried to guess the direction of the market. Right. And the reason, so this is a guy who's back, who's quoted all over this article in the New York Times. I will give you that. It came from the New York Times that I found this article where they're bashing dollar cost averaging because it's, it's titled all these financial things that you think are reasonable, but in reality they don't work. And he quotes that 70% statistic. And then, but then he does go on and he contradicts himself by saying the sheer fact that if you just go sit in cash, by all means, dollar cost average. Right. And I think that's probably more at the heart of what happens to people is people, this is not an all or nothing. A lot of people just say, you know what? I'm just not going to, to do anything. I'm going to sit on cash and wait for the market to get crushed again. And that's when I'll go invest. And then, you know, we had the downturn of 2008. It ended in March of 2009. A lot of people had that mentality, and now they're looking at themselves as the Dow has gone from you know mid six thousand, blown through eight thousand, blown through ten thousand. They're like, well, I got to get back in at some point. But I'm sure there's a downturn coming. Then it goes to eleven, goes to twelve, thirteen, fourteen. They're like, wait, well, you know, I'll just I'll just keep waiting for that downturn. You know, and that's the thing is, before you know it, it's past them. Right. And and that's the bad 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 behavior of the average investor. You know, remember, we I say it countless times, what is the ultimate goal with investing? You want to buy low, sell high. But the average investor totally buys high and then sells low because they get scared. We as human creatures are the most fear-driven, I don't want I don't want to say broadly on the planet, but by all means, we do a lot of things to hurt ourselves just based upon fear. And Brian, you remember back in 2008, 2009, we were fielding phone calls all the time. How many clients did we have calling us saying, guys, should we go to cash? You know, is now, should we get out of this thing? So, mm-hmm. I don't know that we had very many, if any, clients calling and saying, hey guys, we really ought to think about kicking up our dollar cost averaging plan right it's now. It's very rare because most people are scared to death. When we go through the the, the market, uh, the motion, uh, the emotions of a market, typical market cycle, you will see that market capitulation, meaning that emotional capitulation at the very bottom. Which on our, when we show this as an education piece, we show people this bottom part right here is the peak opportunity to invest. But nobody wants to invest. All you have to do is go look at inflows into investments. And then when you get to these periods when everybody is patting themselves on the back, and who knows, maybe we're in one of those periods because we are hitting all-time highs. But the thing is, we don't know. I mean, that's because you look at the trailing price-to-earnings ratio and you look at stats like that, and we're kind of hitting more of an average for you know the last 20 to 30 years right. because we did get way ahead of ourselves in the 90s but because of how deep the 2008 recession was you know there's kind of some catch up going on but there's still this wall of worry that people were constantly climbing trying to figure out what to do with their finances and that's why I like to say don't make this an emotional maneuver make this come up with a plan that addresses the fear that things might be overpriced and you don't want to get hammered by that but also have something that doesn't keep you on the sidelines. So five years pass and you're going, when in the world am I going to get in the financial market? So you come up with a plan of action. I also want to give you one more, you know, just data point. So I could kind of, you know, knock it out of here and show you why I I don't think this is as gray as some in the financial media will try to make you think it is. Um, I went and result, you know, I, I went and looked at one of my favorite research pieces. I follow it every year. 
is Dalbar comes out with the quantitative analysis of investment behavior. Because if you want to talk about investment behavior, that's really what drives a lot of what happens with your personal finances. And I, and if you ask me, what do you think a personal advisor does that adds a lot of value? If you take it outside of just looking at the annual rates of return, a lot of times it's just they're your coach. It's the same reason that I am much better at going to a CrossFit class where I'm in a small group of people and have a, a, a coach there that's going to hold me accountable and then yell at me when I'm over there kind of trying to drink on my water really slowly, let the time run out. They're going to make me do things that I don't want to do because it's better for me right. that way. It's the same way with a financial coach, an advisor, is that I'm going to try to make you do things or think about things that probably are going to be uncomfortable to talk about. I mean, I do not like talking about estate planning. I do not like talking about you buying life insurance. I don't like talking about how you don't need to go spend so much on this because you need to be saving more for the future, but we do what's necessary to keep you on track. So when I go and I pull the 2014 Dalbar Quantitative Analysis of Investment Behavior Study, and just so if you want to know, what is this study and how long has it been around? What what are you talking about, Brian? Let me read their first paragraph because it kind of gives you an overview of the program. It says, since 1994, Dalbar's quantitative analysis of investment investor behavior has been measuring the effects of investor decisions to buy, sell, and switch into and out of mutual funds over both short and long-term timeframes. The results consistent, consistently show that the average investor earns less in many cases, much less the mutual fund performance reports would suggest. So when you see those, the, you know, you, you go buy your Kiplinger's magazine, your money magazine, and you're flipping through there's an advertisement about funds that have earned, you know, you don't see this anymore, but back in the, the early 2000s, you, you saw funds bragging about that they got 20, average 20 year returns for the last, 20% returns for the last 10 years. Right. I mean, it was crazy stuff like that coming out. And, and, you know, back in the, the early 2000s before the dot-com bubble. And what we have found, though, by doing research by people like Dalbar and their research is that the average investor is not getting what those mutual fund companies are bragging about. It goes on and it says, covering the period from Q, QAIBs, that's, you know, that's one, once again, the quantitative analysis of investor behavior, Inception, that's from January 1st of 1984 to December 31st of 2013. The study utilizes mutual fund sales, redemption, and exchanges each month as the measure of investor behavior. These behaviors reflect the average investor. Based on this behavior, the analysis calculates the average investor return for various periods. These results are then compared to the returns of respective indices. So let's get to what this means. Here's the data points. Since this report came out, starting all the way back in 1984, equity funds, well, the S&P has averaged 11.11%. Since 1984, is that what you said? 1984, taking into account all the way through the end of 2013. So, I mean, we're getting to 30-year history, okay. history here. So, 11.11%. So, you think, wow, that's a great... Man, if I could put 11% in my projections... Things on what good. I'm going to make, uh, you've got a great retirement and financial independence is going to look really good for you. So let's look at bonds because it pulls up Barclays Aggregate Bond Index. What has it done over that same 30-year period? It's 7.67%. So once again, stocks reward you a little bit more because you're taking on additional risk and additional volatility, but bonds didn't do too bad with 7.67%. 
Inflation during that same period of time was 2.8%. So now I've set the stage for you. I've told you how the indices have done. How's the average investor done? Equity funds, just straight up equities, 3.69%. Fixed income funds, 0.7%. Wow. Asset allocation funds, 1.85%. So you can see the average investor, horrible at managing their own money and figuring it out. So that's why when I have people tell me dollar cost averaging does not work when you're at this point of, of just being frozen, because you know, you're paralyzed because you're fearful that you're going to choose to invest at the wrong time. Don't just give up and just put it away and put it in the back cupboard and not think about your financial future. Come up with a plan that helps you address these things. Um, I went a little further because it made me think of some client issues I've dealt with. Because here's, I thought this was a key takeaway from this research report. It says the value of capital preservation is clear in bear markets, but its value is generally ignored in bull markets. Several things come to mind on that. We have a lot of clients because we have been in a period of extreme returns in just very concentrated asset classes. The S&P 500 last year did over 32%. We've had a number of people ask us, Brian, the market did 32%. That's incredible. The market's up over 7% this year. What, what are we doing? Are we getting all that? And I have to remind people, be careful just trying to keep up with what's going on with the S&P 500. Because did you hear what I just said? The value of capital preservation is clear in bear markets, but its value is generally ignored in bull markets. And what do I mean by that? We have a guy that we talk to a good bit about investments. I hope he gets to hear this because he gave me a great analogy that I love, and I've been using it a lot recently. He says, guys, I've looked at how y'all are managing money. This is a peer of ours, so it made me feel good when he, he told us this. He said, I've been looking at how you guys manage money. He goes, you set up your clients to, for portfolios that are going to weather all four seasons. He goes, and that's probably pretty hard for you guys because you've got a portfolio that during the summer, none of your clients are going to get too hot. During the winter, they're not going to get too cold. You know, in the fall, when the winds come, you're not, they're going to get blown over with their portfolios. And just like when it rains in the spring, you're going to keep them dry. Because when you're in the summer months for years, you know, it's not just, you're not cycling through the, 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 the season like you normally do, because we've been sitting in summer for a while now, clients start questioning, what are you doing? Why aren't you keeping up? Meanwhile, you're dragging around a winter coat to keep them safe just in case the cold weather comes. And a rain jacket. So, and that's, that's the part. And I, it made me think of a client. I still remember we have an, we had, did an investment policy meeting back in 2002 with a client. This is back at the beginning of when I started the firms. And I remember talking to him. He was scared to death. And I set up an asset allocation. It was one of the few times we had to go back to an investment policy meeting and redesign it because he was worried about the risk profile that we came back with on the allocation. So we redesigned the portfolio. Everything rocked and rolled and was good. Went into 2003. And y'all remember what happened in 2003. That's the recovery year of the dot-com bubble. We went through a bad, 2000, bad 2001, bad 2002. And then about October, November of 2002, things started rocking and rolling. So 2003 set up to be a great year with, I think, like a 28% S&P 500 type of return. And I'll never forget that client. He's still a client, by the way. So he's been a client for over a decade now. He has came back to me in two, at the end of 2003 when we were going over his performance. He goes, 
hey, what's your chance of us kicking up that risk level <laughs> a little bit more? It, it, when, I, when I read that quote, that the value of capital preservation is clear in bear markets, but its value is generally ignored in bull markets, it made me think of the whole seasons analogy. It's because we all, it's that whole battle between fear and greed, is that when we start making good money, we're not thankful for the situation. We actually get a little more greedy on that we could get a little bit more. So I think that's very important. Um, I thought this was a great stat that, that Dalbar put out there. It said the prob- probability, because this makes you feel good just about investing in general. It says the probability of the S&P 500 declining by 1% or more in a month from 1987 to 2013, the results show that the prob- probability of a loss of 1% or more in any given month is only 11%. But if you have two months in a row that the market loses 1%, um, it, actually that probability jumps up to 19%. So that's what it just shows how you, you can look at things. But I like the fact that you think about it, 89% of the time when you invest, you are going to have a positive result. Right. Hopefully I don't look at it from a month-to-month basis. But think about things more from a long-term perspective instead of just trying to time the market. Um, I'll close out of this Dalbar piece. I did think it was interesting because they totally bashed. I've been using the word bash a lot in this episode, but I think it fits on this. It said, Attempts to correct irrational investor behavior through education has proven to be futile. That makes me think of a sci-fi. You know, that's always, you know. Your efforts are futile. (laughs) The belief that investors will make prudent decisions after education and disclosure has been totally discredited. Instead of teaching, financial professionals should look to implement practices that influence the investor's focus and expectations in ways that lead to more prudent investment decisions. I think if we said that a little bit differently, we can talk to a prospector client until we're black and blue in the face about how they need to buy low and sell high. But in those times, it doesn't matter. You can give it all the lip service in the world. Clients and, and individual investors aren't going to feel comfortable in those times. So if you have a strategy like DCA put together, you don't have to worry about making the right decision. That's why when I read that quote from the Dalbar study, I immediately said, that's screaming, create a strategy that helps your clients implement through these type of problems. Since education is not going to work, that's dollar cost averaging yep. is what that is. And it really does go a long way. They had four best practices that um, could help the average investor avoid losing money from all this bad, you know, letting your emotions take advantage of you. And the first one was set expectations below market indices. We tell clients that all the time. It's hard to get 100% of what the index is doing when you're diversified for all four seasons. Number two, control exposure to risk. So in other words, you know, make sure you understand, you know, what the beta is, what the alpha is, how well designed and diversified your portfolio is. Number three, monitor risk tolerance. And it can evolve, by the Mm -hmm. way. So you always need to be very aware of where your risk tolerance is. And then lastly, it says present forecasts in terms of probabilities. So, you know, that's what we talk about Monte Carlo simulations all the time when people get closer to retirement. So kind of closing things out, how do you make this strategy work for you as an individual investor, as a money guy listener, now that I've kind of tried to knock it out of the park and show you why some of these people that dislike dollar cost averaging may be right statistically on that 67 to to 70% of the time, you're going to do, be better off with lump sum investing, but they very well could be leaving themselves greatly exposed to a risk that I think that you need to be very aware of. So here's the strategies I came up with in Money Guy fashion to help you, you know, kind of make this work for you. I put number one, you must have a correct asset allocation. 
You know, I think that is very important. When we're talking about dollar cost averaging, it not only works with just stocks, you could also use this with bonds because there's a whole wall of worry on stock, I mean, on bonds as well because of interest rate fear that you could do this exact same strategy also with bonds. So make sure you have your asset allocation in the right working order so you can put this thing to work. Number two, you must stick to the plan. And I put that in capital letters. Stick to the plan in capital letters as the market crashes and burns around you it will become increasingly difficult to feel comfortable in your plan. Just remember that you want the market to go down at some point. That is when the benefit of dollar-cost averaging is truly experienced. So, you know, just it's that whole financial mutant that we've had listeners write us about in the past, that, you know, they know exactly which days of the month that they're buying into, and they get excited when it's down those days of the month. It's kind of interesting. It is funny how that, that does happen. Number three, make it automatic. Don't trust yourself to write a check every month. Pick one day every month and have an automatic transaction take place. After a while, you won't even miss that money and thought you couldn't live without it. And that's true. You get addicted to saving. And how many times do we recommend a client set this up or even some of our friends socially, hey, set up a joint account, have some money go in, and how many times do they come to us 12, 16, 18 months in the future and say, guys, holy cow, I can't believe how quickly that account built up. I don't even miss that money. I didn't even know that money was there. And all of a sudden, I've got X number of dollars built up for, you know, whatever the, whatever the goal may be. And, and I don't want to take our, our focus off of us building financial independence and clients building financial independence. But I have seen one of the things that you, by dealing, doing this for a living, I would, I remember when I started noticing certain parents that were saving or grandparents that were saving $100 a month for children, you know, and started doing that until they turned 18. Mm-hmm. You want to blow your mind, and it goes back to what it takes to be a millionaire. I did that slide a few weeks ago on you know how cheap it is for a young person to start saving and letting that compounding interest. It, it, it is right on $100 a month. Most of us could do that, and then in 18 years, you would be shocked at how much money that turns into. And it ties exactly what, what you were talking about is that people usually don't miss it, and then they even get addicted to it because what I'd like you to do is start with some nominal amount that you know you can afford. And then, you know, as you get addicted and you start seeing results, you'll keep pushing that number up. And before you know it, you're kind of a titan who's building your, your own little financial empire. And that leads to the kind of number four, which is the closing one. It says, don't go overboard. I'd written down, start out with a low ball number. If you feel like a right now you can do save $1,000 a month, but you aren't sure about the future income stream, Back it down to 800 and that also helps you, like, because maybe you're great nine months out of the year, but you get around the holidays and you're worried about it. Choose a number that you think will be good for all 12 months of the year, because I'd rather you have a plan that works throughout the year than you start and then stop. Start and right. stop, because that's not a plan of action that's going to lead to success. Um, it says give yourself a plan, but make sure it is a plan that you're sure to stick to. And those are the things, I think if you can put that strategy to work, you never I, I, never such a strong word, but you you can take away the risk of worrying about what's the market doing, because I think that's where a lot of us get frozen into inactivity, and we we forego a lot of decisions that could help us build financial independence because we're having a whole internal battle. Remember, I said we're going to war when I, mean, I played the Rocky music. You are having an internal battle with trying to figure out how much fear, how much greed, where am I comfortable with with my risk tolerance. I want to equip you with as many tools as possible so that you have the tool belt, that Batman tool belt, that you can get through the situation and and not not feel like you're facing these concerns as much as you would if you're just the average person 
who wasn't listening to the Money Guy podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's show. This one was a fun one for me to put together. I was very passionate about it. Um, hopefully I didn't talk too fast, Bo. Sometimes when I get really excited about stuff, I talk really fast. But um, I think we, we put a lot in this episode, and I really appreciate you listeners kind of hanging in there with us. We, I, we, I think we thank you guys a good bit, but I, I always feel like it's not enough. Thank you for listening. Thank you for the, the, the iTunes comments. Thank you for all that you're always giving us great input, and you're always welcome to write the show and um, just let us know how we can even make it better. You can write me directly. That's Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at money-guy. Or you can write Bo, the guy who's sitting across the way from me. That's Mr. Bo Hansen, the head of our Nashville office. That's B-O at money-guy.com. I'm your host, Brian Preston. We'll be back in two weeks. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston. And Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.